And let me now pray for us as we hear God's word. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We also thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to help us to understand it. And we pray that he will be with us now as I speak, as we listen, that you will speak into our hearts and open us up to what you have to say to us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So, what's all this then? Acts 2 on the Sunday after Easter. I mean, it's not Pentecost Sunday yet, is it? If you know your church's year. Pentecost comes 50 days after Easter. The clue's in the name, actually, if you know your Greek. Pentecost is Greek for 50th. You learn something new every day or every week in this church. Even if you're a church assistant, there's always something to learn. Uh, And that's true. So why is it that we're looking at this chapter, Acts chapter 2 of Pentecost, on this week when it's still a long way off? Well, uh, as Carfoon was saying earlier, you may well have noticed that there's a coronation coming along on the 6th of May, and we shall all hear or say or sing, God save the king, and long live the king, and words to that effect. And so we're having a short series here at All Souls over these coming weeks to celebrate the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, he calls himself in Revelation chapter 1. And in this 5.30 service, we're going to spend some time thinking about this day, the day of Pentecost, that day when it was publicly announced to the world that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is Lord and Messiah, which was another word that basically meant King, King Messiah, for the people of Israel then. So first of all then, what just happened? Well, you can see it there in the first 13 verses of the chapter, uh, and I'd like you to just imagine, if you would for a moment, imagine yourself one of that crowd of international visitors in Jerusalem. You'd actually come to Jerusalem some, well, nearly two months earlier for the Passover, as many Jews did, and Jewish converts, as we read, Gentiles who'd come to faith in the God of Israel, and you'd decided to stay on for a few more weeks until Pentecost, and most likely you're in the temple courts, that is, the area that surrounded the house, God's house, as it was known. That seems to be the most likely place where the apostles were also at this moment. Because Luke tells us at the very end of uh, his gospel, the last verse of Luke's gospel, that they, that's the disciples, after they had seen Jesus rise and ascend to heaven, they stayed on continually at the temple, praising God. And indeed, at the end of this chapter, if you turn the page and look at verse 46, you'll see that they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So there you are, right, with thousands of others, all the way from Libya in the west to Persia in the east, from Turkey in the north down to Arabia in the south, and you're cramming Jerusalem with these crowds of worshippers and tourists, and you're glad that you find your way into the courts of the temple just in time for the morning sacrifice, which took place around about nine o'clock in the morning. And then, to your amazement, you witness what was actually a kind of triple miracle. Because, first of all, you hear this rather terrifying noise of a violent wind. It's like a hurricane noise filling the the whole temple area that you're in. And then you see flames of fire which have have appeared around a a small group of people who are sitting together there in some part of the courts. Luke tells us uh, earlier in chapter 1 that there were about 120 of them, men and women, who were followers, disciples of Jesus, as well, of course, as his, uh, his apostles, his disciples. 
And then you see that there are these kind of flames that are gathering around them, tongues of fire that seem to be alighting on them individually. And then this whole group of people start talking loudly and excitedly. And it's a sound like a mighty babble of nonsense at first, as far as you can tell, until suddenly you hear one of them talking your native mother tongue from Libya, where you come from. And then one of your friends calls, hey, they're speaking Arabic over here, and Turkish over there, and Latin over here, and it's all God's stuff. It's all about God. They're telling all about the things God has done and the history of Israel that you knew all about. And they're talking about God, but they're talking in all the native languages of everybody that's there. Even though you can tell they're Galileans, actually. I mean, wind and fire and God talk, multi-languages. What is going on here? Has God shown up? What does it all mean? That is exactly what they say. Can you see there in verse 12? What what does this mean? You'd have asked that, wouldn't you? There's a question on everybody's lips. Well, most people anyway. There's always somebody around to make a bit of a joke of anything. And some people think all these strange people talking, well, they're just drunk. But then one of them, 12 of the group actually, get up together. And one of them, obviously their leader, who we know as Peter, raises his voice, and he calls out to the crowd. Can you see it there in verses 14 and 15 in the chapter? And he says, no, 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 folks, they're not drunk. It's a bit too early in the morning for that, don't you think? It's a good sort of humorous start to what he has to say. It gets people laughing a bit. But as the laughter dies down, Peter has a very serious point to make. What does all this mean? Well, Peter's going to tell us. And actually, what it means is most simply stated in this chapter at verse 36, where Peter announces, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Messiah meaning king, as I said. That's what this means. But Peter isn't going to say that just yet. That was verse 36. Do you see? You had to turn the page to find it. He's going to work up to that as a kind of climax, as a conclusion to a quite amazing speech that we have here in Acts 2, which comes in three sections. And in each section, he builds what he's got to say on a quotation from the Scriptures, which we now call the Old Testament. And what we're going to be doing today and then over these next few weeks is to look at each of these sections of his speech Verses 14 to 21 this evening, and then a little bit more next Sunday, and then with Phil Keane over the following two Sundays as well, as we look at this chapter together. So what does all this mean? They asked. You asked. Well, what Peter's going to tell us is that it means something completely unprecedented, something that has never happened before. This is really God's stuff. God is in action, and God is now doing something that he'd never done before. Until now. And that is, first of all, it means that God has poured out his spirit. That's the first thing that Peter says. Because that's basically why you folk heard all those noises, the loud wind, the fire, the flames, the praises of God, uh, the wonders of God in multiple languages. Because listen, folks, God has showed up. This is God. And all that is happening here and now is actually a fulfillment 
of what the prophet Joel had declared 700 years before. Do you see it there in verses 17 and 18? This is quoting from prophet of Israel named Joel way back in the Old Testament. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And Peter says, this that you're witnessing here today, friends, is that which the prophet spoke. What he prophesied as future is now here. God made this promise that in the last days he would pour out his spirit. And the word pouring out means a downpour. It's like a a tropical monsoon of the spirit of God is what's going to happen. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that the spirit of God was invented on the day of Pentecost, that he hadn't been around before. The Old Testament scriptures are full of the Spirit of God in one way or another. In fact, the Spirit of God comes in the very second verse of the Bible. He's there in the story of creation. But mostly in the Old Testament, God's Spirit came on people one at a time. Like on Moses, for example, who led the people out of Israel along with Aaron and Miriam. Or two men who are actually the first people in the Bible who are said to be filled with the Spirit of God. You should know their names. They were called Bezalel and Aholiab. Check that later with you. And they were filled with God's spirit to be craftsmen, to work with stones and wood and precious metals and so on, to build the tabernacle for God. Or sometimes the spirit would come on the judges like Samuel or Gideon or on the anointed king in Israel or individual prophets. There's one marvelous occasion in Numbers chapter 11 when the spirit of God came on 70 people all at once. Uh, the 70 elders of Israel, and they prophesied. They were speaking out for God. Uh, but there were two of them called Eldad and Medad who weren't there with that original group in the camp when they were doing that, and they started prophesying. The Spirit came on them, and Joshua, who was Moses' number two, got a bit upset, all this unscripted charismatic activity going on, and he says to Moses, my Lord, stop them, stop them. And Moses said something which I think is almost amusing. He says to Joshua, perhaps with a twinkle in his eye, are you jealous for my sake? He says, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets. Then they wouldn't have to bother me so much is probably what he was thinking. I wish all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on all of them, says Moses in Numbers. And you can almost hear the voice in heaven from God saying, don't worry, I will. Just wait. That's exactly what I'm going to do but not right now. And then the prophet Joel announces, and he says, that's what God is now doing in the last days. The last days, which of course begun, not in some future end times, the last days, according to the New Testament, began when Jesus rose from the dead. And in these last days, God has now poured out his spirit, not just on one or two or a few leaders, but on all God's people. So this is a new age beginning on this day this day of Pentecost. That's why we didn't sing uh, this evening a song which we used to, not not here at church, but I have heard it sung about praying for God to send the fire, and there's a line and it says, we need another Pentecost. And I always, when that came up, said, no, we don't. We've had it. It was the day of Pentecost, and it happened, and God poured out his spirit. The new age has begun. And since then, every believer in Christ receives the gift of the Spirit of God which is what Peter will later in his speech promise to these people in verse 38. 
So whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're old or young, according to this prophecy, if you belong to Christ, then God's Spirit has been poured out for you, for all. There's no spiritual elite in the church, in God's church, ever since the day of Pentecost. No patriarchy, no hierarchy. Pentecost radically equalizes the people of God as far as God's spirit is concerned. Now, later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will give a lot of teaching about the work of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit in the church, and he makes it clear that the Spirit of God has given different gifts that are distributed all around the body of Christ, which is how he describes the church, but distributed not in such a way that anyone can claim to have more of the Spirit than anyone else. No, with different gifts, but the same spirit for everybody. And it's interesting, and I think significant, that Joel here twice says that when God's spirit is poured out, quotes, they will prophesy. Now, prophecy in the Old Testament was basically a way of speaking out for God. There were those prophets that did that. Some of them we have written into our Bible itself. Their names are on their books. Others are there, like Nathan and, uh, and Huldah and Miriam, the sister of Moses. They, they spoke for God in one way or another. Sometimes words of warning or words of encouragement or rebuke or comfort. Whatever it was that God was wanting to say to his people, these were the speakers for God. And the prophet Joel looks forward to a day when that will be the privilege of any and any and every believer. And Peter says that day has now arrived, that with the outpouring of God's Spirit, all God's people can speak a word from God without distinction of age or sex or status. Which is why the Apostle Paul can tell Christian believers that what they need to be doing is teach and admonish one another, he says, within the body of Christ, with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. That's in Colossians chapter 3.16. And later on, Peter, the Apostle Peter, would write that each of you, he's speaking to the whole church, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards. Steward, sorry, of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Now, that sort of a gift, of course, can easily be abused. We need to be aware that just because somebody claims to have a word from the Lord or to be a prophet doesn't necessarily mean that they truly are speaking something from God. Paul is quite clear that we need discernment, which is another gift of the Spirit, that the words that are claimed to be words of God need to be tested within the church, Paul says. And even Jesus warned us against false prophets and false teachers within the church, just as much as they were there in the Old Testament. There's a whole section of Paul's letter to Corinthians, the first letter, chapters 11 to 14, where Paul discusses this whole issue in a section which is to do with how churches would be worshipping together. And clearly, as he writes, there were some folk in the early Christian gatherings who had a particular gift of prophecy. There are different gifts, and some have that particular gift. But clearly, Paul also shows that it was a gift that any believer could have and could exercise, male or female, as Joel said, with all the varied gifts that were poured out by the Spirit. Paul himself and 
his friend Luke, who wrote the book of Acts that we're just now reading, when they were on their way back to Jerusalem at one point, they stayed with Philip, the evangelist, in Caesarea. Uh, Philip was the one who led the Ethiopian eunuch to faith in Jesus, you remember back earlier in, chapter, in, in Acts. And Luke tells us that Philip had four daughters who prophesied. Uh, so that in itself would have been interesting as a phenomenon that Paul would have been familiar with. That's in Acts chapter 21. So Paul knew that men and women were praying, prophesying in the gatherings of the churches together with the Holy Spirit present. Sometimes it seems the way it's described in the New Testament that prophets would give a short prediction of something that was going to happen, like Agabus. But the way Paul describes it in these chapters seems that in the New Testament, this was often a way of sharing edifying words for the building up of the church, is the way Paul describes it. That may have included words of Scripture from the Old Testament, which would then be explained and interpreted just as Peter is doing here with a Christ-centered, gospel-centered interpretation of the Scripture, or it would be in a word of encouragement for the believers, a gift, Paul says, quotes, that builds up the church. And so Paul himself valued this gift very highly and exercised it himself, he tells us. And he says that the one who prophesies edifies the church for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. And when he's describing as they gather together, he said two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said, the discerning and testing, so that everyone, he says, everyone in the church may not only be able to share what God is saying, but also be instructed and encouraged. So what does all this mean then? Well, it means that God has poured out his Spirit on all those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, without exception and without distinction. But there's more in this passage. You see, Peter and his listeners, because they would have been Jews, Peter and his listeners, they knew their scriptures. And they knew that when that great day of God's Spirit would come, the Spirit of God, it would mean that God's kingdom had arrived because they put the two together. That's actually the way Jesus would speak too in his preaching and teaching. You remember all the wonderful miracles that Jesus did in his lifetime and how he linked together the Spirit of God at work in him and the arrival of the kingdom of God in and through him. He said it quite explicitly on one occasion. He said this to the people who were around. He says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So that's another thing then that this day of Pentecost now means. In that sense, the king has come because the Spirit has come. So what it means, therefore, is that if God has poured out his Spirit, then the Lord is king. Long live the king, as indeed he will forever. Now, we've seen that Peter has just quoted from the prophet Joel, but he could easily have prophet, or chosen other prophets to quote from. I mean, one of the things that I'm hoping that this little series in Acts 2 will do is I preach from it next week again and then fill for the following. It will help us to see just how important it is to understand our New Testaments in the light of the scriptures of the old, of what God had already said. And Peter could easily have quoted Isaiah because he foretold the outpouring of God's Spirit and linked it to the coming of God's King. 
or perhaps more correctly, to the coming of God himself as Israel's king. Isaiah chapter 32 is a very long chapter, but it begins with a king and it ends with the outpouring of God's spirit. Here's a couple of verses from it. Isaiah says, see, a king will reign in righteousness. He looks forward to that day. And then after a little bit later, he says, till the spirit is poured out on us from on high and the desert becomes a fertile field and the fertile field seems like a forest. You see the connection between the king coming and the spirit being outpoured. Another prophet, Zechariah, of course, uh, also looked forward to the coming of the king in a prophecy we're much more familiar with from the day, from Palm Sunday, where Jesus actually acted this out as he rode into Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, but lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The same prophet, Zechariah, looked forward to another day. He talks about the day, he says, when the Lord will be king over the whole earth, and on that day there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name, was what Zechariah foretold. And what name will that be, please? Well, of course, for the prophet Zechariah and Old Testament Israel, that would only have meant the name of Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, the God of Israel. The Lord who is and was and always will be king, king of Israel, king of the world. But here's the thing you see. Here's what Peter is going to come to in verse 36, although he hasn't actually got there yet, neither have we. But what he's going to say is that Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, has shared his name with Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, or as Paul will put it a little bit later, and uh, Carfoon referred to it earlier in that wonderful passage in Philippians, where Paul says that, therefore, God has exalted him, that is Jesus, to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. Well, there's only one name that that would have been. That was the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So that at the name of Jesus, which I don't think just means at the name Jesus, but at the name belonging to Jesus, the name that God has given to Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is who? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, as I said, that's not yet part of Peter's speech. It gets there in the end. But we needed just to take note of it here to catch the drift of where Peter is headed as we'll pick it up a little bit more in the coming weeks. So what is being said here is that in Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord God of Israel of the Scriptures has walked among us in human flesh and is now reigning as king. The one true living God, the God of all creation, the God of all nations, the God of all history, past and present and future, this God, the Lord God Almighty, reigns, and his name is Jesus. Jesus, our Lord. The Lord is king. Lift up your voice. That's what we sang, didn't we, at the beginning of the service? The Lord is king. Lift up your voice, O earth, and all you heavens rejoice. Through earth and heaven one song shall ring. The Lord omnipotent is king. Jesus is Lord. The Lord is king. Long live the king. King of kings, Lord of lords, forever and ever. Hallelujah. It's hard not to drop into Handel's Messiah when you're thinking of such things. 
But you know, there's more still. There's one more thing to come. Because what's the first and most important thing that a king must do for his people? Answer, he must protect them and save them from their enemies. Indeed, that's still the prime responsibility of governments even today. You'll hear that from time to time, that the first thing a government must do is to protect their people, to save them from their enemies, to keep their people safe by whatever means possible. And so it is in the Bible. The God who is king is the God who saves. And God saves his people because he is his people's king. And the Psalms are full of that. The Psalms are all the time looking to God for salvation because you are our Lord, you are our king. In a sense, it's your responsibility. You have promised, you have committed yourself to be our saving king. And so coming back then to our question, what does all this mean? It means that if the Lord is king, then there is salvation for all. That's the third point that we need to make here. And that, of course, is where Peter comes to the climax of his quotation from Joel. Can you see it there in verse 21? We've read it already several times, and it's been spoken out, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is salvation for all and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is king, and he has power to save in the widest, deepest meaning of that word of salvation. The Lord is king, says Peter, not in Israel alone anymore, but over all the world. Everyone means everyone, anyone of any nation who calls on the name of the Lord can receive God's salvation because he is the saving God. That's his very identity. It's almost his name badge. Now, as we said earlier, Peter is here, of course, quoting from Joel. But, as I said earlier, he could have turned to other prophets with the same kind of message. Zephaniah is one who puts it like this. Here's a a quote from that prophet. And again, you can see the link between being king and salvation. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves, says Zephaniah, the saving God. Now, again, when Joel, Zephaniah, or any of these prophets of the Old Testament were speaking about the Lord, they meant the Lord God of Israel. But without doubt, when Peter quotes this verse, he's talking about calling on the name of the Lord, he means Jesus. And he will preach that again and again and again, even in the next few chapters. Even when they flog him and dump him in prison for doing it, he will still say that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus, Jesus the Lord. You see, whatever happened to Peter or to any of his fellow apostles and believers, they were ultimately safe. They knew that they were saved for all eternity because Jesus had died from on the cross and had risen again, exactly what we've been singing about earlier in our service. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, and through him we can have salvation. They knew that. They knew that they were safe in the arms of Jesus, their king. And with Jesus as Lord and King and Savior, they were absolutely, utterly sure 
of their salvation. Are you? It's a question, isn't it? Are you sure of your salvation? And why do you need to be? Why, why do you or I or anybody need to be saved? What do we need to be saved from? Well, that, of course, is what Peter also has a scripture for here. Because you see, as he says from those verses, the day of Pentecost did indeed indicate that we're living in the last days, as he calls it, in verse 17. But we've not yet reached the last day, the day of the Lord, as Joel puts it here, in what Peter quotes in verse 20, the glorious day of the Lord. Now again, going back to our Old Testament scriptures, prophets like Joel and a number of others often spoke about the day of the Lord. And they thought of the day of the Lord in two ways. The two ways in which God had often acted in their history. That is, when God acted, it was often for both judgment on the wicked, their enemies and those who rejected him, and salvation for those who trusted him for deliverance. Judgment and salvation. And so they looked forward, the prophets of the Old Testament, they looked forward in anticipation to that ultimate day, that climactic day, a day which could be described in the cosmic language of verse 19 and 20. This is apocalyptic language, wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth below, blood, fire, smoke, sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord. This is something final. This is when God will ultimately put all things right. The great rectification day. When God will pour out his justice on all human and satanic rebellion. When God will eliminate evil forever from his creation. Evil will not have the last word because God is the judge and the savior. And when God will bring salvation and deliverance and vindication to all those who have put their hope and their faith in him, in life and in death. And that day is coming. The New Testament talks about it a lot. Paul describes it as the day of Christ, he says. The day when all of us, all humanity, will stand before the judgment seat of God. And that, you see, that is when, that's where, that's why you need God's salvation. But it's the salvation that God himself has provided. This is the wonder of the gospel, that God has provided salvation from his own judgment by bearing that judgment in himself, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And that's why, you see, Joel and Peter immediately can move from talking about the day of the Lord to immediately making the promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There it is again in verse 21. Because see, that's all it takes, you see. A simple call. The Lord who will be your judge can be, longs to be your savior. If you'll call out to him, make that call. He's waiting for your call. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Or maybe, and I expect from many, you're a believing Christian already, thank God. And you know that your eternal salvation is secure in Christ for all eternity. But that doesn't mean that you can't call out to God again and again, as we sometimes sing, I call out to him again and again, calling out to God to step in with his help, his deliverance, his saving power in any circumstance where you need it. I mean, the psalmists do that all the time. They knew God. They knew God as Savior, and they call out to him for his salvation to be made real in their lives and their circumstances. Earlier this week, I was reading Psalm 71, and I found it a great encouragement to myself in the opening verses. And in a moment, I'm going to put those verses on the screen and invite us to say them together, because they're words in which we call out to God together. And maybe for you, this may be for the first time, you've never thought of it before, of calling out to God and asking him for his salvation to come into your life to save you for that day. Or it may be simply because you need that reassurance of faith that God is there for you, holding you safe in his arms. So as we read these verses together, the band will come up and then they will lead us to the final song, a wonderful song of great assurance, He Will Hold Me Fast. We will sing that together after we've read these words as we call out to the Lord. So let's read them together. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Amen.
Amen. Please be seated again for a last word. Normally, our rector, Charlie Screen, would come and, and, and give the blessing, but he's not here at the moment. So just a couple of quick things. First of all, there are some refreshments served over here, so please do go and uh, enjoy those after the service if you wish. Uh, and also remember the Connect Corner, uh, especially for those uh, fit, strong young men like me who want to volunteer uh, to help at uh, Coronation Praise, Coronation Prom. Uh, and yes, some of us will be going around to the Stag's Head afterwards for a bit of further conversation and being together, so you can join us there if you wish. But now let's pray together and come to a final blessing. So may our God and our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and great hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with us all this day and until Christ returns and forevermore. Amen.